This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in African American Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. Guthrie Ramsey, Jr., He is Professor Emeritus of Music at the University of Pennsylvania. We are here to discuss his new book, Who Hears Here on Black Music, Past and Present, published by University of California Press, 2022. Guthrie, I could not be more grateful to be in dialogue with you today. It's my sincere pleasure to be here, Ari. Thank you. To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What were the formative events in your life that inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Well, I was born in Chicago, Illinois, and I was raised on the far south side of the city. And my earliest musical recollections are what I believe shaped me and inspired me to become a musician. There was always music in the house that I uh, grew up in, all kinds of music. And I remember uh, going to a small Baptist church with my family when I was about five years old. And I heard the music, the excitement that it was creating uh, in the congregation. And I think from that point on, I was always very curious about the people behind the music. Uh, As I uh, grew up, I became uh, more serious about musical endeavors. becoming, I would call myself a serious musician by age 11 or an aspiring musician by age 11. It's something I became uh, quite interested in. And then through high school and eventually becoming a a music major in uh, college and around that time also uh, becoming a professional musician, uh, taking gigs around the city and churches and jazz clubs and anywhere I could uh, play piano. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope readers will take away from this book? Well, this book is a collection of essays that I have written uh, over the past 25 years or so of my uh, career as a music historian and musicologist. And what inspired me to uh, write it uh, as I uh, retired from uh, teaching Uh, last uh, year, 2021, is that I wanted to, uh, as I say in the book, collect myself. I wanted to roam across my uh, career and its output and decide which which essays I believe best encapsulated uh, the range of topics that I've treated in throughout my career. And uh, since some of this stuff uh, or most of it previously appeared in um, journals and and you know uh, across many different disciplines. I wanted to 
uh, allow my readers to uh, access these writings in one place. And so that's what inspired me to, to do it. What are the primary themes in your book? What story, quote unquote, does your book tell? Some of the primary themes in the book are, of course, uh, musical genre. I love to talk about how uh, the music industry, how audiences and how musicians themselves categorize what it is that they do and listen to and sell. Another uh, theme in the book, throughout the book and throughout my writing is this uh, notion of historiography. And the definition of historiography is the history of writing history. So I've always been fascinated by uh, learning how people have talked about music through the years. In this particular book, I moved from uh, the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, all the way up to the uh, the, the present, uh, you know, evaluating, reading and evaluating and uh, encapsulating the main, major arguments that uh, music writers have, have done. Another uh, theme throughout the book is this idea of cultural criticism. And by that, I mean, taking what historical actors have done in their lives, in this case, what music they have been playing and trying to understand how the music makes meaning in throughout the social networks that the music uh, travels in. And then finally, uh, a theme uh, that runs throughout the book is that uh, music is uh, best understood if you uh, have someone to kind of break down its the sum of its parts and to tell you, uh, you know, how things are made and how things logically fit together. So there is some musical analysis in this book as well. What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of music? What can scholars of other music cultures, such as Jewish music, learn from studying Black music? as presented in your book? Well, one of the things that I have uh, stressed throughout my uh, teaching career, particularly, is that uh, it is through music that we can access the inner thought lives of, of historical actors. We can uh, try to understand what their motivations were. We can try to understand what uh, the, or how the things they have written and made resonate across historical moments. And so I think it's the perfect uh, humanistic endeavor is to try to understand what musics people have made uh, his, both historically and in the contemporary moment. And I finally, I should say that I think my book models that, uh, models that exercise. What barriers has the study of Black music had to overcome in order to gain academic legitimization? In what ways is this battle still being fought? Do you feel pessimistic about the future? Why or why not? Well, first of all, I'm always uh, optimistic about the future. I think that is uh, part of what it means to uh, be an artist, because I also am a musician and not just a uh, an observer of the culture. I try to make music as well. And I have always been motivated by the hope and joy that uh, music can bring uh, people. I think if we are in a room and everybody's 
listening and feeling the same sound waves. It's one of the strongest ways that people create social bonds. And so through that, I, you know, I don't know how you can be uh, pessimistic in the, in a, uh, in an art form that is really about joining uh, different people into a uh, singular sonic experience. What does your book teach us about aesthetics? Well, one of the things that I've always insisted on in my uh, writing is that the musical object matters, that there are ways that we can uh, talk about, say, a, any given song and think about all of its reception histories. We can think about what the uh, composer or the musician was trying to do. We can think about how audiences have responded. We can think about how the music industry and the record labels have tried to shape the, uh, the musician's output. But consequently, I always believe as a musician and as a uh, music scholar that taking apart the the music and trying to understand it as an aesthetic object, one with power, one that can compel audiences as well as dispel audiences. You, and the only way to really get at that is to talk about uh, the aesthetics of the, the object, I believe. I guess you could talk about it other ways, but when you uh, use the music uh, that is being experienced as uh, front and center, you, come up with uh, different answers, I believe. So aesthetics is uh, paramount. What does the study of Black music in the academic world reveal about the possibilities and limits of genuine interdisciplinarity? How is this interdisciplinary scholarship achieved by specialists in the field? What kinds of resistance does interdisciplinarity encounter when it comes to Black music? Well, it's really fascinating that I became aware of, of the, the music disciplines and this idea of interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity. And lately, there people use the term multimodal, meaning different modes of trying to understand things. I was frankly introduced to this when I became part of the academy. It I always uh, took a more holistic view of uh, understanding music. And it wasn't until I, you know, entered into graduate uh, program, to a graduate program that I learned about the, uh, the strict boundaries that uh, discipline-centric uh, study uh, uh, I've learned the power of it and how you had to to overcome it. Now, of course, I believe that music uh, is the perfect uh, place to uh, exercise these, uh, you know, multiple ways of entering into a discussion about music. You can talk about the science of sound. You can talk about the music theories, you know, what is the, the grammar and the syntax of the the the, uh, the music. You can be a historian and talk about the historical context of the music. You can think about uh, the ideas and notions of the self, meaning who musicians believe they are in the world, who audiences believe they are in the world, and how uh, the music industry tries to manage that relationship uh, through uh, monetization. 
so it, there's just so many uh, different ways to to come at it. Now, what surprised me is that there was a lot of resistance to this uh, interdisciplinarity, and uh, one can only chalk it up to you know power struggles. People want to kind of own their domain and to hold everyone up to the same standards. Uh, however, uh, as time has moved on, uh, more and more uh, scholars are, are recognizing the need uh, and the uh, fruits of disciplinary, uh, you know, interdisciplinarity or multiple multidisciplinary uh, uh, inquiry. Why are there not enough Black ethnomusicologists? What can be done to remedy this? Well, uh, there are certainly more of them when I entered the field more than 30 years ago. Uh, I think part of the problem has been uh, systemic, meaning, uh, say, in order to get into a an ethnomusicology program, uh, you have to have a prerequisite background, more, more than likely in uh, some uh, a musical music department from from undergrad. So at every point, and in, in order to be a music major, accepted as a music major in college, you have to have certain kinds of high school experience. So it's really a matter of pipeline and what sets of experiences uh, black musicians are being uh, allowed to have access to that will allow them to have the choice of whether to become a musicologist, ethnomusicologist, or a music theorist, or even a composer that is training in the uh, in in uh, music departments in the in the uh, in the academy. So it's really a matter of making sure that there is a clear pipeline from elementary school into the uh, graduate programs. What does your book teach us about deep listening? One of the things that I believe music achieves is this ability to absorb uh, the connotations and meanings that we uh, want ascribed to it. And sometimes it can uh, refuse those as well. So I believe this multi-pronged approach that I take in the book of understanding the history of writing the histories of this particular genre in which this song sets or whatever it is that you're analyzing, understanding who is making the music, who is listening to the music, and what other mediating factors is uh, allowing that to happen. Also geographical location is very important because you can take the same musical utterance and sound it in, uh, in London and, the, and sound that same musical utterance in St. Louis and people will generate different meanings from it because of where they are and how they're socially situated. So I think that when you take all of those things into account, uh, you can get at a, a, a kind of full understanding of what it means to listen. Because when you're listening, you're not just listening for your own perception or you shouldn't be. I guess you can, but it's a much richer experience to deeply listen for 
all of the historical traces that might be in a piece of music, to understand all of the dialogues that this particular uh, uh, song has generated in the uh, um, in 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 its in its history. It's a never-ending process of trying to understand how to deeply listen. What can the study of Black music teach us about virtue ethics? Can you comment on the different ways that good music, quote-unquote, has been contested and defined? How are virtue ethics debated in questions regarding lyrics, composition, and genre? Let's start with this uh, question of uh, the the goodness of, of, of music or how people separate out what is good and what is bad. One of the things I have taught my students throughout the years, and I discuss it in the book, Who Hears Here, is that uh, a question posed by a British musicologist, Christopher Smalls, why are these people listening to this music at this time in this place provides us a paradigm to understand uh, how people have valued different aspects of, of, of music. The one thing I always try to uh, get people to understand that there is always a contingency in value. What do I mean by that? I mean that you're going to hear whatever it is or, or look for whatever it is that you personally value in a piece of music. And that is either going, to, either going to compel you to like it or is going to get you to decide that this is not what I'd like. This does not provide me the value that I look for in the musical experience. But if we take Christopher Small's equation, why are these people, meaning people with very specific identities at different historical moments, making this music making something that can be analyzed uh, uh, objectively as to how it's made, its form, its melody, its rhythm, its timbre, its uh, loudness, its, its uh, speed. So all those things that make the music, why are these people making this music at this time? What historical moment is it emerging in this place? Where is it happening? Then you can get to why those people may find something of value in it that you lack. So I think that there's always this dialogue going on when we listen to music, that you're always trying to understand your own subject position vis-a-vis -vis the musical object that you are engaging, that this is a, a natural process. If you can step back a little bit and try to understand what others find value in it, you won't be going around looking for the goodness and the badness of music. You're looking for a higher level of understanding. But that is not to say that you cannot try to understand your own values. So if you think something sucks or if you think something is great, it's good to question, why do I think this piece is great? Again, this kind of goes back to our deep listening. It becomes not a matter of just what I'm hearing. It becomes a matter of trying to understand his, the, the historical grounding, the material grounding, the uh, geographical grounding of the musical object in question, and therefore giving you this, this better experience. 
Now, the second part of this question is for me quite fascinating. And that is, we have to understand the values that we've been, uh, that we've inherited from the outside world when it comes to music. And I always go back to this uh, configuration of, of art music, mass music, and folk music. The first thing that we do when we uh, encounter a piece of music is to try to place it. There are like three discourses, three main discourses that we have inherited uh, that attempt have attempted to categorize artistic production. And the first is art, the idea that you can interact with this piece of art, this painting, this sculpture, this music, and transcend not only your own historical, mo historical moment, but transcend the historical moment in which this piece was made that you can access some kind of deep experience through something called art that has nothing to do with the marketplace that is universal and therefore isn't tied to any group of people at any moment in time. That's one attitude toward the music. The next big attitude toward the music is this music was made for the marketplace and the more it sells, the better it is. That that is going to be my barometer of of the goodness of this piece of music is how much music it made for the makers and how much music it made for the industry. Usually those pieces are the ones that get uh, on the, uh, uh, the, the award shows, you know, that at representing the quote unquote best. So in other words, they have taken the idea that value means monetary value and monetary value equals musical value. Then there's this third category called folk music, which is about being tied, things, artistic production tied to a singular group, usually a subaltern or minority group, you know, music, uh, uh, black music or Appalachian music or in any other kind of thing that is tied to a specific group of people. And it is thought that if those people are not using it functionally in their lives and valuing it for that, that it's it's no good. I'm submitting that these different kinds of values and contingencies of value can be mixed up. They can, usually all objects have all of those values in it. And any claim that this particular music is better than the other is always, always a subjective experience. What does your book teach us about self? How is quote unquote self contested and debated in black music? What does your book teach us about self articulation? Great question. I think I kind of take this head on in the uh, intro of the book where I, I state that although I am a music scholar and we are trained or used to be trained anyway, to think about our findings as being objective, that in fact, anybody who would approach your, your you know, the topic that you've approached or written about what you are writing about would get to come to the same conclusions because there is some kind of capital T truth that we should all be pursuing in our work. 
Well, I have always believed that, or I have come to believe that even if you are writing scholarship, even if you are writing a novel or doing music criticism, that your writing is a form of self-expression, that you are self-fashioning who you want people to believe you are in the world through your artistic op output, through the writing that you're doing. So this first idea of the self is that whether we believe it or not, we are always ex are expressing ourselves on the level of style, how we dress, how we talk, what we write, what music we listen to, what music we choose to share. We're always in this process of self-fashioning. And this is something I take up in the book. And since these essays were written over 25 years, one of the things that I was sensitive to as I reread them is where was I at that point I was writing this piece? What was I trying to do at that historical moment? So I'm asking myself all the time, why did this person write this essay at that time in that place? How does your book advance our understanding of popular culture? One of the things that I think is important about Who Hears Here is that it, while recognizing the distinctions that people have placed around something called art music or something called pop music or something called folk music, I try to put them all on equal footing by asking each the same set of questions. So Consequently, what we learn in Who Hears Here is how the pop music that has been sold to us as the more this is selling, the better it is, meaning its value is in its monetary value. There's also aesthetic you know, uh, issues present with popular music, as many as they are in um, in the art music. So you can't say that a piece of pop music is less valuable or less aesthetically uh, charged than say a string quartet or a symphony. You just have to know what to listen for. And that's one of the things I think I uh, contribute to the discourse in popular music. What kinds of intergenerational tensions play out in black music's performance and interpretation? What can be learned conceptually and theoretically about these? How can such phenomena contribute to our understanding of intertextuality and influence in Black music? Well, one of the things that I have paid attention to in uh, my writing since the beginning, and that is this idea of intergenerational dialogue. Intergenerational dialogue for me is uh, one of the things that A, cre has created this idea of tradition in African-American music, that uh, this is a musical uh, tradition that is constantly referencing its past uh, intentionally. Now, one of the things that has also happened consequently is that as uh, musicians have absorbed the previous generation's innovations and made them uh, simply rhetoric in their own expression. So they're taking something that was once new, absorbing it into their own practice, 
and then creating other ways to be innovative and therefore replacing the other, the previous generation's avant-garde as simply their practice. Generally, people don't like to be replaced. They don't like it when uh, they're not in the perpetual avant-garde. And one of the things that I tried to take up in, in the book is to, uh, in the ethnographic uh, aspects of my work, is to try to understand this intergenerational dialogue, both in its you know negative aspects and its positive aspects. Now, in terms of intertextuality, that is precisely what we're talking about when we're thinking about musicians previously, uh, or when we think about musicians taking up previous work or previous styles and absorbing them into their own practice. It's a, a better term would be uh, intermusicality, which is uh, something that the uh, ethnomusicologist uh, Ingrid Monson has uh, talked about in her work. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There's a quote in your book that I'd be curious to run by you and ask you to elaborate upon. On page 94, you write the following, without question, critiques of essentialism or anti-essentialism have achieved a lot of moral good, but I wonder if the dismissal of ethnic or better social particularity in cultural criticism leaves us with an undesirable universalistic blindness, bland, blandness that refuses true cultural difference. Allow me to expand on my views here by way of a creative analogy. Pot liquor for those who are not familiar with it, is the liquid base of many Southern dishes. It provides the juice in a variety of beans and greens dishes that my Southern-born and raised mother cooked almost daily, as pot liquor is appreciated by connoisseurs of this style of cuisine as a rich source of flavor or essence. So too has the Black music functioned in American society. In my view, there is a fundamental problem with some of the theories of anti-essentialism circulating in today's cultural studies of minority groups. Our efforts to de-essentialize our thinking about culture sometimes results in our draining in-group sensibility of what makes it a good thing. If we take away the quote-unquote essence or flavor, what remains is a pot of sustenance with some nutritional value, but nothing you can sop up with your cornbread. Nobody asks for pot liquor specifically, but it's understood as necessary and desirable. How does the pot liquor metaphor apply to theorizing Black music? Can you expand on this passage for us? You know, writers are always looking for a metaphor. <laughs> We're always looking for a way to connect with uh, a, a reader and uh, to have them understand, uh, you know, our, our conceptual frameworks. I use that term pot liquor to describe uh, an aspect of culture that I think is not present 
when we try to make everyone the same, when we try to uh, say that, I, I think a, a, a perfect example is when you say, music is the universal language. Okay, well, every culture has music, it's true, but it's not as if that music will be translatable across cultures unless you do the work to understand what it is that that music is trying to do, not what you need it to do, but what do the people who are making it intended to do, you know? Back to this question of deep listening. This is how we learn how to listen, is to understand under what circumstances uh, music emerge. Uh, now, in today's uh, culture, because music circulates so widely and so quickly over the internet, it is possible to enjoy uh, musics uh, from around the world, from around from a, another culture that you're not part of. It's absolutely possible to make your own meanings. But are you listening deeply? Are you getting the sustenance? Are you getting the the pot liquor? Are you getting the the roux, the part of the meal that uh, for me provides the the uh, the tastiness, I, I hesitate to say essence, but we might go there. Uh, so it was, a, that pot liquor metaphor was about uh, trying to get readers to understand that a good part of the enjoyment of musical practice is let out if you're trying to make everything the same. I think you can make everything equal without making it the same. Which theorists of Black music have had the greatest impact on you? How has your scholarship grown from the influence of current and previous scholars? Can you share some examples of books and texts that you have grown from? I would say uh, the most important of uh, music theorist for my journey has been uh, that of Dr. Samuel Floyd. His book, The Power of Black Music, which was uh published in 1995, right after I had received my, my doctorate, has been so fundamental to how I began thinking about uh, how to write about uh, Black music that was informed historically, that had some ethnographic, uh, uh, you know, aspects to it, and that dealt with uh, geographical location which uh, such expertise, uh, it appeared in uh, the, an article based on the book, appeared in 1991 when I was in graduate uh, school. And it just opened up so many doors for me to uh, move down the path that I moved down. So I would say Sam Floyd's The Power of Black Music has been number one in my book. There's another quotation I'd be curious to ask you about from page 244. You write as follows, subsequent to the high years of protests and legal challenges for equal rights by African-Americans, urban centers decayed into post-industrial spaces, fraught with poor educational systems, drug epidemics, and widespread economic depression. Even as superstars such as Michael Jackson, Prince, Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, and others had careers that crossed over into the pop charts, a growing disaffection and creative surge within urban communities spawned new forms of music directed at their own communities. Hip-hop, a genre 
a popular genre appearing in the late 70s and coming of age in the, the 80s and 90s, represented a dramatic sonic development based on the inventive manipulation of previously recorded music and semi and non-melodic oral declamation as its emotional focal point. Attention to and understanding of the genre has benefited from a generation of scholars who grew up as fans and wrote about it within a paradigm of literary and cultural studies, a framework that moved easily among journalistic, ethnographic, and scholarly modes of discourse. Can you elaborate upon that observation for us? Well, that passage that you read attempts to do a lot of work. Uh, first, I would say that uh, let's talk about the history uh, that it, the historical point that you began, and that is this post-industrial moment. If we look at the uh, development of African American music throughout the 20th century, it's uh, been shaped by, uh, like I would say, three major uh, historical shifts that you could look at. The first is the great migration of the early 20th century when uh, scores and thousands of uh, African-Americans moved out of the uh, the agrarian uh, situations uh, of their, you know, heritage in, this, in the United States and into uh, urban centers in the North and the West. The second big uh, 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 event could be the World War II years where uh, you had uh, African-Americans uh, really beginning in earnest this great push for civil rights and beginning to make legal strides in uh, overcoming their uh, their plight as second-class citizens. And this other moment that I'm speaking of, this post-industrial moment, is a moment when the urban centers that were once seen as havens for African-Americans began to uh, collapse around them because of the technological uh, uh, moves that the economy was making out of the industrial and into the technological, okay? So this is the moment that um, hip hop emerged in, and I was trying to kind of give a thick description of that historical moment and how that music uh, developed and from where it came. Can you explain the concepts of social race and theoretical race and cultural race as they are presented in your book? That paradigm was for me a way to, first of all, describe to my students, you know, uh, different ways of looking at that word because it's one of those words that we all think we know what we mean when we say it. And, uh, just as a student of culture, I know that that term has moved and shifted around where it can mean different things at different times. And there was a point in the United States, the uh, the land base that I study, uh, when the idea of different races constituted Irish, Italian, German, and <laughs> African-American, Jewish, People just, people were thinking about race in that way and wrote about it in that way. 
So I broke it down into three elements that made sense for me. Cultural race being the cultural practices that people uh, do that they believe defines them against other groups. And it's usually does have, has nothing to do with this idea of purity. It could often be a mix and match of different things, but it's through the practice people think they are uh, living as racial beings. Social race for me, uh, constitutes the larger networks of society that can either make it easy for people to practice these things or try to make a subaltern group uh, less than and therefore giving them reasons to resist this, uh, uh, this uh, larger structure that is attempting to uh, subjugate them and in some cases annihilate them. Discursive race is, for me, these uh, kind of purely theoretical uh, uh, constructions, let's call them, or, or fundamentals that uh, one can hear in uh, the scholarship that attempts to understand what race is based on theoretical constructs. And I believe that we're always living all three of these at the same time. As we bring our dialogue to a close, could you kindly share with us what you're working on now or next as a current and subsequent project? Okay, I have uh, several projects in line. Uh, first of all, I'm about to drop a song, Who Hears Here, that is uh, a, connected to the book as a way to promote the book, and that will be released on my uh, Bandcamp uh platform, Guthrie Ramsey. I have a, uh, a history of African-American music, not a collection of essays, but uh, a uh, history that sums up this whole history from the colonial era to the present uh, called Soundproof. That's the next uh, monograph that I have uh, coming down the pike. And I'm also working on a uh, collection of little stories uh, about my two-year-old grandson who was born in the pandemic. And I uh, established this kind of make-believe uh, relationship with him through social media, where we were calling each other, FaceTiming each other uh, during the pandemic when, you know, you couldn't see people uh, without the, uh, without the, the virtual. And uh, it's, uh, I've kept a, a log of all of those uh, injuries, those uh, social media posts about him and I'm uh, pitching it around. I wish you the best with these projects. They sound phenomenal. And Thank you, Ari. This has been a, a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for the interest in my book. Thank you for your eloquence and erudition and everything you shared with us. And um, thank you for everything we learned from you today. To our listeners, this is Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books and African American Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Guthrie Ramsey Jr. He is Professor Emeritus of Music at the University of Pennsylvania. We have been discussing his new book, Who Hears Here? on Black Music, Past and Present, published by University of California Press 2022. Thank you. Thank you.